to this edition of, of Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic, and today we are speaking with Ed Horton, founding director of, of Property Developers, The Stable Group. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Ed Horton. Uh, thanks, Branko. Um, okay, so according to your website, Stable is an innovative, award-winning Australian development uh, and property services company established in 2003. What will it take... So you, you've been around so now, what, 15 years? What will it take for the majority of builders and, or developers in Australia to design and build homes that utilise renewable energy um, or other sustainable you know, concepts? Is it a case that we're waiting for some sort of price tipping point? Uh, look, that, look, the answer to that is in part yes, but it's also... Uh, part of the legacy way we design buildings and the way we build buildings. And what we need to do is challenge conventions to how we deliver indoor air quality, how we deliver energy, how we manage and consume energy. Um, And one of the problems we've always had is that uh, as an industry we have been dictated to in part by traditional ways of doing things. So if you go to an architect to design a house he'll, or an office building, they typically build walls, roof, glazing, concrete floor, air conditioning, lights, and so forth. One of the problems we've always had is that the, um, the legacy uh, approach has... Uh, limited the capacity to uh, deliver these basic fundamentals that you require in a house using different delivery methods. Um, And in part that's because uh, consumers don't know any different and architects and builders and so forth haven't been exposed to different ways of delivering these functions within a a dwelling. And they... uh, they have been somewhat reluctant to step outside their comfort zone. So what we have done is we've challenged convention and looked at different ways of uh, delivering energy, managing energy, indoor air quality, um, comfort levels and so forth. And what we've been able to do is deliver those same levels or better levels across a whole spectrum of functions of, of dwellings using different delivery techniques. And sometimes we've actually gone without things, like we um, don't put mechanical ventilation in common areas in in our commercial buildings. We use natural passive techniques to um, manage indoor air quality and so forth. So we're actually making capital savings, and we can divert that to that money, either make it as a bottom line saving, or we can divert that money we otherwise would have spent into other initiatives uh, in terms of solar and other perhaps more expensive items, but our bottom line cost remains roughly the same. Okay, so it's a bit like, um, uh, I don't want to use a well-worn phrase, thinking outside the box, but it is a bit of thinking outside the box, isn't it? Look, look, it is, and we, 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 we just call it challenging convention, and um, there's nothing wrong with challenging the way we've always done things. You can always turn around and say, well, I'm going to continue to do it, but at least you've challenged it, and Unless you, unless you go down that path of saying, how, how can I deliver these functions and services differently? And when I say differently, with lower 
operating cost, greater levels of comfort, uh, perhaps even lower capital cost. Um, you, you just don't know. So it's 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 an important it's important these days to challenge and contest. Okay, so let's talk about the Bircham building in Rosebury. It recently won the interior design category at our 2018 Sustainability Awards. It's a AJ and C design former Wrigley's chewing gum factory, I believe, um, turned into a into a residential um, apartment block. Is this the future of Sydney living? And moreover, um, should this be? the future of, of Sydney living. I mean, are there many other former industrial sites in and around the city that you think um, need or, or should be readapted for, for, for similar purposes? Look, look, again, a good question. And we uh, were attracted to this site because of the um, size, scale and character of this lovely old concrete building. Um, uh, it was the first all-concrete construction building in New South Wales, we're told. And so it, it, it had inherent characteristics which we found quite exciting to, with you know, up to four metre ceilings. It's 100 years old, isn't it? It's 100, yeah, so it was completed in uh, uh, 1918 and uh, it was the first Wrigley chewing gum factory built outside Chicago and the original building in Chicago was demolished in 2014. So our building, we are led to believe, is now the oldest Wrigley chewing gum factory existing. Um, and uh, the the uh, the finished product is 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 quite beautiful. I mean, you've been there. Yeah, it is. It is actually. Um, I, I actually really enjoyed the high ceilings. It it did not strike me as an apartment block. No, or, or as as apartments, if I can put it. Yeah. No. Look, it's it's we're we're delighted with the result. But I guess coming back to the question, I mean, what's you know, is this perhaps a, a look inside the future of you know how we look at um, uh, uh, brownfield sites, we call them. Um, and it, they do have their challenges, um, environmentally, structurally. Uh, there aren't... You, you cannot say that every industrial building can be converted to residential. And uh, you also have uh, planning restrictions and limitations. So I think in we, we have seen uh, some successful conversions and we would encourage people to look to recycle these old buildings where they have some inherent value and character um, and you know we see the market embracing this type of product as well I mean we've been you know great fans of you know converting warehouses around Sydney and Melbourne in particular for the last 20 years and um, uh, you know if, if people have the opportunity to do it we'd certainly encourage it but there are a lot of traps. Traps in yeah. terms of? Well, um, uh, latent conditions. So latent conditions are things that you're not aware of when you go into uh, a building that, you know, when you dig around. Um, you know, we had a lot of issues with uh, uh, concrete cancer in the building, which, okay. were, which were hidden because over the years the, the lintels were taken out and damaged by... Um, when it was an industrial building and a commercial building after that, where windows were replaced, uh, we think, three or four times. And there was not a great deal of care taken by the builders in those days when they were making those changes over the years. And these are things that we discovered only once we got into the uh, construction. So th- there, there is a 
a warning when you are dealing with these type of old buildings that they they do um, they do uh, tend to have uh, problems that will emerge during construction that you, you, you it's not possible to determine you know in the early stages of design and planning so uh, it, it's not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> You've described the Bircham as luxury living with an old world soul. Um, what does this actually mean? I mean, I, I've actually been to the building, so I, I think I have a good idea what it means. But for those who haven't been, and, and how does it reflect in what is being, you know, in the design trend in, in, in apartment living in, in the city? Is it, re- is it reflective? Because something tells me it's not. Well, look. And that's a good thing, by the way. Yeah, look, look where, where it's reflective of a of a pattern which we would certainly encourage is the sense of community um, that we've managed to create in this building and that's within the what we would call privileged space so in the secure areas in our expansive gardens and rooftop where we have edible gardens we've converted the old uh, water tower uh, void space under the tank into uh, an outdoor cinema a large outdoor cinema and the water tower itself hasn't been used since 1956, since Wrigley's vacated the building and we've rebirthed it. So it's now a fully operational water tower. So all our gardens uh, are watered from harvested rainwater. So all of our roofs, we've got four roofs, and we collect all the rainwater, and that's stored in t- uh, subterranean tanks in the basement. And then the, the old water tower on the roof is, serves as a header tank. Um, our edible gardens, we've got two areas there, um, our outdoor kitchens on our roof, um, we have edible gardens up there for the community to mix and mingle and gather, and then down in our Wrigley Common, uh, which is a very large uh, garden space um, between the buildings, and we have edible gardens there. To the extent that we've, the body corporate, we've set up a gardening subcommittee, and so we've got, I think, six residents who sit on that. And um, they fancy themselves having green thumbs and we've set up a potting shed and a budget in the strata levies to uh, provide for that gardening subcommittee to go and buy plants, tools, whatever they like, and they control it outside the the building's landscape maintenance contract. So we've got a, a a real sense of community going on in the building, in a safe, secure space, uh, we have no keys in the building. It's all biometric. Um, it provides for absolutely secure access for people to get around the building. Um, uh, everybody's connected to their apartment um, uh, through data, through a, a um, uh, smart home automation system. You can open your door from anywhere in the world. You can be up on the roof having a dinner party or having lunch and guests can arrive to the car park. Um, which is number plate recognition, and you can put their number plate in and it'll receive your guests, or you can open the garage door from the roof from your phone. So it it allows you to uh, congregate, mix and mingle, but still stay connected to your apartment in a safe, secure place, and we encourage uh, engagement and interaction, uh, which we think is terribly important. Uh, in society.
Um, okay. I, I, having been there, I've got to say it's um, it does encourage inter- interaction. Yeah, the edible gardens are very interesting. Um, getting back to the overall sector. The housing sector. Mm. I read yesterday, in fact, there was an, another article this morning um, that the the OECD is warning of a massive crash in our housing sector. Now, apart from the fact that um, you know correct economic predictions are a bit like you know picking next week's winning lotto numbers, what are you seeing on the ground? I mean, in the building sector, is it is it is it is it the carnage that that, that we're hearing in the press, or is it a little bit more measured than that? Look, that, that, that again is a really good question. That's something that uh, we're very focused on at the moment. Uh, we, we are of the view that this, this flat spot or this downturn that we're in, and I'll speak in the Sydney market, and I know it's national, but I'm more familiar with the Sydney market, is that it, it is a correction that's been brought about through um, uh, in primarily... Uh, government uh, instruments slowing down the rate of uh, uh, property uh, pricing, um, property development um, through ASIC and APRA and uh, putting pressure on the banks to tighten up lending controls. Uh, And that has had um, a significant impact over the last, certainly the last 12 months in the market. Um, and we are seeing uh, property developments not get funding. Um, we are seeing some projects have valuations um, hit pretty hard uh, on settlements. Uh, but what we're not seeing is we're not seeing mortgagee sales in the market, and that tells us something, that that banks are not foreclosing on people um, that you might otherwise expect in a significant downturn that we have seen in the past. Um, we are seeing, certainly we're seeing banks uh, restrict lending to some people, but we're not seeing them wholesale foreclose. So that suggests that it is the the owners which are uh, either not selling at the moment, or they're selling at reduced prices. But it's but but it is still in the control of the people that own the property rather than the banks. Is that a, what they're calling a correction? Then it is. It is. It's not a collapse. It's a correction. And. If we have a look at the underlying fundamentals, uh, and again, I'll speak in Sydney, we're still looking at around 50,000 dwelling shortfall per annum. Uh, still? Still. About wow. 50,000 dwelling shortfall per annum. And we are seeing um, <clears throat> the organic absorption of existing stock, albeit a little bit slowly, or slower than it had been, say, in 2016 15, 16, 17, but stock is still getting absorbed. Um, And we're also seeing some mooted projects uh, and the numbers for apartment dwellings, and I'll speak about apartments, which is a separate set of numbers to houses. So they're they're considered separately. Uh, So apartments, the numbers that we see forecast apartments is based on 
DAs, so development approvals. So that's where they get their numbers from. But in reality, a lot of those approved projects are not going ahead at this stage because they're not getting their funding. And even though you might have pre-sales and lots of um, ads in you know, the domain and online for projects and they're still taking deposits and still making sales, that doesn't mean that they're going to be uh, under construction anytime soon. Uh, we assumed, because that's the way we looked at it in the past, that there was a DA and there was pre-sales that was going to be under construction and finished. But because of the restrictions on funding, some of those projects are not getting up. So what that means is that we've got existing stock on the ground that's being absorbed and the mooted stock that's coming through uh, may or may not come through at the same level as what has been projected. So with the sh- if you consider the shortfall in dwellings and what will soon be a reduced level of stock coming through, you're going to see increases in prices. Um, there was a domain, uh, uh, the chief economist for domain uh, put out a report last week and um, domain are looking at um, an increase in prices in apartments in Sydney uh, next year uh, uh, and that price increase is 3% they're talking about and 5% in 2020 and for houses in 2019 they're suggesting that the market is going to be flat and then increase about 4% in 2020 so if that's right we we have we've probably seen or about to see the bottom of this cycle uh, in Sydney, uh, and again, I'm not talking for the rest of Australia. Um, this isn't that's that's not too bad, though, is it? That's, it it's uh, very good. Look, it's very good, and I think there should be um, a level of confidence. We should we we should feel more confident about the Sydney market, uh, and I think going into 2019, um, uh, we are going to see. Uh, absorption increase. I think now architects need to extend themselves into understanding and contributing to the client's understanding of technology and how it applies in the building um, and energy in particular, uh, sustainability, which impacts on insulation, performance of the building, glazing, materiality, uh, and, and also that impacts on design too, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And the design and en- engineering. Um, uh, often in the past, a, an architect will design a look and feel and then hand it over to an engineer to structure it such that they can actually you know, create that look and feel. But I think there needs to be a, a greater level of understanding um, uh, of building operation and performance and also buildability uh, and engineering when it comes to acoustics um, uh, and 
particularly energy and indoor air quality. Invariably, the architects would leave that to others to try and work out, and they stood back. I think they need to uh, do a lot more deeper diving into that to understand it uh, and into that detail. What do you think, as a society, we are really missing and how can we achieve a far more sustainable, for that matter, a far more equitable building sector? Um, you know, in a lot of ways that um, we talk about sustainability, but are we, are we getting there as fast as we should and how can we, how we, can we become a lot more sustainable? Uh, look, I think in, in part the it's the architects need to, um, as I said uh, in response to the last question, I think the architects have got a responsibility or certainly there's an opportunity for them to engage more in the energy and sustainable space. Um, I also think that uh, authorities in planning need to provide that greater bandwidth and capacity for developers, owners to um, to make that additional commitment to sustainability, whereas... You're talking councils, right? Yeah. So whereas today um, council uses the stick rather than the carrot in the main, um, in, in our experience, we... In all of the buildings that we create, we go above and beyond what the minimum standard is. Uh, sorry, even at a stretch, you know, the council stretch of their, you know, what they'd like to see, we go above and beyond that. But we don't get recognised for it from a planning perspective. We still pay the same fees. We still get hit with the same imposts. Um, and... You know, council often says to us, you know, why don't other people do it, what you do, to the extent that you do, and say, well, because you penalise us. You penalise us. In other words, you don't reward us for for delivering greater levels of, you know, energy self-sufficiency, water self-sufficiency, uh, creating better community spaces. We don't, there's no benefit to us in doing those things. So you won't get the general constituent market out there, the developer market, to, to do what we do because there are too many risks and too many costs involved and you don't get recognised or any benefit from, from council. So it's a, it's a big issue. It's a big roadblock. So what actually needs to change? Well, I think councils need to, uh, in, their, in their suite of costs and charges that they, um, they put to developers... Um, there needs to be some kind of way of crediting um, from those costs, recognise benefits above and beyond the minimum standards in energy, water and community, so basically overall sustainability. And they don't do that. So if you were to reduce the uh, energy load on a building, you were to reduce energy cost to consumers, if you were to 
create additional community space, and which is identified by council, you would redu- reduce the amount of water that you would draw from the mains from Sydney Water. There should be some able uh, to go down that path, but at the moment there's 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 no such structure. Okay. Um on your LinkedIn profile, which I've been reading, um, it, it describes your company as being, or rather as having developed a unique process to contest and challenge traditional industry standards of design, delivery and oper- operation of commercial and residential buildings. In, just in, in relation to what you just said, um, what does this mean? And, and more importantly, what does this look like? I mean, is, mm. is it, it, does that look like, is it the Bircham? Is that what it looks like? Well, look... Uh, yes, but it's, it's also our commercial buildings where we would challenge, you know, the way we would traditionally build a commercial building. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think the building that we're sitting in now, your building, I'm just looking up and there's no acoustic ceiling tiles. It's, uh, yeah, I th- it's I think joists and beams it's and joy- polished concrete floor. It's, so, yeah, I, think, I think this used to be a warehouse back in the day. Yeah, so look, we, we um, uh, borrowed from buildings like this that people were attracted to uh, and said, why can't we make contemporary buildings uh, consistent with some of the character that you're, you, know, you may be paying a premium for in a converted warehouse to have this lovely high ceilings, exposed beams, polished concrete floors. Um, and that's really the advent of the, the 90s or the 80s and the 90s. We started to move to those converting warehouses. So we've said, well, in a new building, why don't we again challenge the convention of not putting uh, carpet in common areas, uh, not mechanically ventilating common areas, not putting acoustic ceiling tiles in, uh, reducing the the uh, the level of lux illumination from four to five hundred at seven fifty desk height to say two fifty or two sixty, and then use natural light or task lamps. So. You you empower individuals to manage their their private space uh, rather than being governed and dictated to by someone flicking a switch at a lift core and you know putting a few hundred lights on all around a building with only a couple of people working there. They might be against a window with so much light, but all the lights are on. So again, that's just challenging convention, um, and it's about reducing recurrent operating costs um, and empowering individuals to have better say and control over their space and also reducing maintenance and operating costs of buildings. So all of our buildings are low operating cost buildings, low strata levies, low outgoings, and that's energy, water, maintenance. So there's, there's a long list of things that we do to challenge and change and all of which deliver, deliver the same or better standard that we're typically used to. So you don't get that shock of change because human beings don't like change. So we have to educate and gently move them from the traditional way to another way using a different method of delivery but not inconveniencing them, not causing them discomfort and not causing them either any or significant costing impost. Having spoken to a few other developers recently, 
uh, who are actually doing similar things. Um, is it my imagination or are building companies slowly but surely morphing into energy retailers? And um, if so, what do you think will be the, the consequences further down the line? Uh, look, more and more buildings are looking to reduce their energy costs and solar with what's called an embedded electricity network, which is a license in this state, allows you to effectively become a retailer of energy to buy wholesale from the energy market. And that it, that it'd come in through a gate meter into your building that power, and then you would be able to sell that power to your owners and tenants uh, at an increased price. Uh, but if you couple that with solar that you can generate if you've got a big enough roof space, you're able to sell that power to your owners and tenants at a substantially lower cost than otherwise would be retail in the market. And that's what we do. Um, so if you have the roof space, because you, you do, it, it's, it, solar requires a fair bit of real estate to get enough panels up there. Uh, to generate a meaningful amount of electricity. Uh, but we encourage you know, everyone who's got any roof space to look at solar and the embedded electricity system. And in our next project, we're looking at uh, community-based energy with battery systems as well, uh, where energy is effectively shared amongst uh, owners uh, under a managed scheme so you guys are actually becoming d- disruptors now, aren't you, of your own industry in a way? Yeah, well, um, again, challenging convention, you know. We're looking at different ways of doing it. And uh, all, all of our innovation inputs, so all of our innovations, whether it's energy, water, uh, materiality, uh, different ways of operating buildings, has a, a tangible and measurable output benefit. In other words, we have lower costs, uh, lower outgoings, and that gets reflected in greater uh, net rents back to our investors. It allows for yield compression because the outgoings are less, so it increases your capital value. So at the end of the day, we are still property developers. We're still investors. Um, but we come from a different angle, but we, we don't lose sight of the fact that everything we do in terms of these innovations has to make financial sense, and that's the challenge. Okay, let's 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 throw financial sense out the window. I'm going to give you. Well, I'm going to have a magic wand, and I'm going to say, I'll give you one favourite or last thing to build. Um, what would it be, and why? Um, look, I, I've always been excited about the fact that we are living in uh, cities and. There is a great deal of pressure on densification um, and the the challenge when you get older is when you leave your house or your apartment, you know, where do you go when you retire or you're in an age facility? And traditionally they are low-rise out in the suburbs somewhere. Um, I, I would like to be able to create... Um, vertical retirement living 
and we've we've touched on this with with our triptych building in Melbourne a few years ago. We had vertical villages where we had clusters of three levels of villages on top of each other, which was our inspiration there was uh, European villages um, where you would have multiple families living within a compound, say in Spain. Um, and gardens inside a wall compound and maybe three levels of apartments and families would live in there. And we took that concept and uh, created those villages vertically. So we had gardens up through every three levels and we'd like to take that to the next level of retirement living. So you'd have care facilities, um, gardens vertically. Uh, And I think we'd like to do one of those um, certainly before I finish and uh, put together all of our concepts but for people who are retired or aged uh, That's fascinating actually so you're, you're, you're thinking, still thinking about the future then? Oh yeah, always <laughs> Ed Horton it's been uh, excellent thank you, it's been very um, educating for me and, and I hope also for our listeners You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design and until next time goodbye